0: I, did, I definitely didn't like academically soar or anything, I didn't get everything right, I didn't understand um, the elements of story and narrative architecture immediately or anything like that, but for some reason there was just this inherent curiosity that made me want to learn how to get it right and ask more questions. I think back to so many of the stories I produced in that class initially, and they were just super long. I didn't know how to cut things out, Um, but first there was some kind of drive in me that wanted to figure it out. Listening to
1: Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Duan Fultz. Sometimes I get a little discouraged that my career path has really been more of a meander with more dead ends and looparounds than I maybe would have liked. I got my master's in education and tried really, really, really hard to be a good teacher. And I think I was, but it was also really, really, really hard. And I was just so burnt out within three years that I knew I had to go do something else. I worked as an administrative assistant. I had a very tiny, not particularly successful photography business. I threatened to go back to school multiple times. And then when I became a parent, I just sort of landed on freelancing. And even that has had more false starts than I probably would have liked. It's hard to describe what I do because I've done so many different things. And so I just tell people that I make shit on computers for people who give me money. But as I've spoken to various Asian Americans in the publishing industry, a lot of them have also had circuitous paths and wound up very happy with the work they do. And while I'm convinced that happiness doesn't lie in finding the perfect job or partner or other life circumstance, it's reassuring to know that others like me have wandered their way to fulfilling creative careers. My guest today is Ashley Hong, who originally wanted to major in neuroscience because of Grey's Anatomy, uh, then decided to study computer science and then journalism, and is now an assistant editor at Random House and a freelance producer. Welcome to the show, Ashley.
0: Thanks so much for having me. So
1: you are an assistant editor at Random House, but what do you really do
0: all day? Yes, that's such a good question. Um, I feel like during quarantine, that question has been like, has just kind of like exploded for myself because I feel like I'm doing 5 million different things in one day. So I need like a moment to kind of think like, what do I really do? Um, But. I would say like there's no day that passes without me um, scheduling at least one thing, whether it's for myself or for this more senior editors on my team um, or something similarly administrative, whether it's drafting a contract or um, what is it? like sending books out to authors and things like that um, again for myself or on behalf of other editors on my team and um, there's also no day that, path that goes by without me reading something, whether it's a proposal that comes in for some, a new project, um, or a manuscript that I'm working on, or a manuscript that a colleague is working on who asks me to just get my take on a read um, or see if the pacing or um, if the pacing feels right, or if something needs a, sens- a quick sensitivity read, um, then I'll, I'm usually available to do something like that. Um, So I feel like those are just some of the kind of anchor points that comprise my day. Um, And then the rest of it is just kind of a hodgepodge of just whatever needs to be picked up. Um, That could look like... um, Let me think. I really do need to think. Like, what do I do? That could look like reaching out to all my current authors, keeping tabs on, okay, where are we in the process? What do you need from me? What do I need from you? Um, I think that lately in the age of quarantine, a lot of work feels like me keeping tabs on other people saying like, Hey, just following up. And then other people doing the same for me. So lots of like mutual nudging (laughs) happening. Um, and Um, Just like internal um, connecting across different departments, like reaching out to uh, cover designers and saying, um, like, can you send me the latest round so I can send to the author an agent for approval? Um, It looks like me drafting jacket copy to get approval from authors and say like, hey, like, this is a first draft of what um, the flops on your on your hardcover jacket could look like. What do you think? Do we need to rework this? Um, and then a lot of internal sales copy, um, to help just make it easier for our sales team to sell the books to booksellers. And so that looks like a lot of reworking, um, just the key selling points for different titles and, um, yeah. And things like that. So I think that's a quick snapshot, um, yeah, I'm sure there are so many things that I'm missing, but those well, are the, so- kind of the main things. Yeah,
1: well, it sounds like, and I feel like the job title editor can mean a lot of different things, but it sounds like you're doing you know, both, you have both a role in like marketing the book and then also in creating or developing the book, um, which is not something that I knew about editors <laughs> probably prior to this. Um, so yeah, can you talk a little bit about like kind of the split in the, or maybe not split, but just like how those two roles interact with each other.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. So I think the biggest learning curve or one of the things that I had to learn pretty quickly um, when I first started the job was just how, um, how much talking editors have to do. I think I had this kind of stereotype in my head of editors as these like kind of brooding, really literary type people who are just like always holed up in their office with like books piled up and just constantly have their nose and like the pages of a manuscript or something like that. Um, And that definitely like that element can very much exist um, across different people. But I think um, the other key element that editors have to do is to buy books and to, and for someone like me who's in commercial publishing, we have to buy books that have some promise that will sell well. Um, so if I read something and it's just amazing, but the um, I don't know the idea is really specific, or it's a really really specific kind of self help book, for example, that I don't really think can sell more than like seventy five thousand copies, then it's probably not like the best thing to get my whole team on board with. Um, And so to that end, I think a lot of the job is not only like tending to the words and the manuscript and the author, but also making sure that um, the, the, that the book and the manuscript is very marketable, and highlighting those marketable pieces um, to the marketers and publicist public publicists and the publicists, so that they can pitch those ideas to um, yeah to different media outlets um, or for different email campaigns and newsletters and things like that, um, and just highlighting those things for our sales force, so they know how to position the book and pitch and pitch the books really well, um, and so. I think that in a lot of ways, editors are the in-between um, kind of presence between the author and the agent and the rest of the publishing world. Um, and of course, people, yeah, editors work very closely with the marketer, the publicist, the designers, um, the sales force. And so, um, yeah, I think that, um, just, that requires a lot more um, kind of, like, it just requires us to think on behalf of sales and marketing a lot more than I think I expected. Um, and part of that involves like making sure that the author has a great platform and also just make sure that the writing is really solid. Um, and that it's something that people will want to evangelize about. Um, but yeah, I think that's definitely a big kind of misconception that I very quickly learned to demystify for myself. The more I interacted with um, editors and different people in the publishing world,
1: yeah, I know this is going to be like a hugely broad question, but what makes a book marketable? Like, what do you look for? What do you compare to in the marketplace? What other metrics do you use? I'm sure you know. I'm sure some. I'm I'm sure a lot of it is you know, art rather than science, but I'm super curious, like what, how do you define marketable and how do you, how do you see it?
0: Yeah. So that's, I feel like that's in some ways the million dollar question. I think for me, it really starts with the writing. Um, if, especially if it's a manuscript or a proposal that comes in, that's just so compulsively readable or it talks about something in such a deeply resonant way where I suddenly feel seen in some way for the first time. Um, if, it has, if it is able to capture that quality, um, then I think platform and social media engagement and things like that can be a whole other conversation. But I think that's the main anchor point that I look for Um, Of course, there are other things like an author platform is also very important just to see how they're connecting or connected with their existing followers um, or how they plan to connect and engage a potential following or a potential uh, readership. Um, I think some go-to metrics um, to determine quote-unquote platform could include a newsletter following, like I have a thousand or five thousand um, newsletter subscribers and that's how I communicate with my read or with my um, with my followers. Um, another thing is just existing books out there. If they've been published before, how those books performed. Um, social media platform is also a thing obviously. <laughs> um, but I think that I've learned to look a little bit more carefully at those, um, at that kind of platform when deciding on a book to pursue because um, yeah, I think we, in the past, either I, or, um, my boss have gotten proposals in from people who have tons like a million followers, for example. Um, but if they're only public or if they're only posting about the things that they buy on Amazon, that makes their life easier. Um, that doesn't really, that's not necessarily going to translate into a really affecting memoir sales, um, or the sales of a really inf- affecting memoir rather, um, and things like that. And so, one thing that I look for instead of just straight numbers um, in terms of followers is instead just audience engagement and seeing how people are interacting with this author or potential author. Um, seeing what they're responding to, and also asking the author themselves, like, what do you think that your um, your audience is responding to the most? Is it um, like is it your lifestyle content, or is it questions that you're asking about faith and intimacy and things like that, or um is it your writing is it your art what is it and kind of um identifying those elements and seeing how they translate into a book um yeah so I think those are the main points um that I'm looking for in the age of COVID of course there's always speaking which has looked a little bit different now yeah um and then I think if the author is able to capture either like a kind of aspirational quality to them. I think that's something um, that also is part of the conversation. Um, But I do, um, yeah, I think those are the main like hard numbers and metrics that we look for that are definitely the easiest to pitch to publishers and um, to get buy-in with the overall team. Um, And then there are quieter metrics, for example, where I'll see something in a book that I saw because, sorry, hold on my area with an editorial is mostly as all adult nonfiction books, mostly in the faith space. Um, but for example, if I read something and I get the same response or I have the same kind of visceral feeling that I did with a book, like with a, a novel, for example, like Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, that's not nonfiction. That's a novel, but it just captures like, it captures this quality that I feel like people haven't seen in a book in any other book, at least for me, like that was the first time I felt represented and seen in a book. Um, And I saw how people just like evangelized the crap out of that book after it was published. And so um, like keeping in mind that word of mouth is still the biggest sales driver for books. I think that just having just addicting addictively, addictingly readable, compulsively readable writing is definitely key. um, And I think also part of that conversation on what makes a book marketable too. Yeah,
1: definitely. How did you end up in this? It seems, at least to me, it seems like a pretty, you know, specific space um, in editorial. How did you find your way there?
0: Yeah. So there are a couple different like short answer versions to this. One is, that i was desperate for a job and this team happened to be desperate for an assistant three years ago another short answer is just god because publishing is kind of a competitive industry to get into and i wasn't necessarily looking to get into publishing um and then christian publishing in particular is extremely white and not really centered in New York, unlike the rest of publishing. It's usually in like Grand Rapids, Michigan, out in Colorado, Nashville, Tennessee, um, basically like the rest of the country. Um, But somehow I just landed in this random spot in New York, are in this team that happened to be publishing not only in the faith space, but in the more progressive faith space. So, exploring authors who are thinking um, through really challenging questions that define um, the different experiences of faith in the modern age and really grappling with these questions honestly. Um, and yeah, I remember in the interview, I just thought it was an editorial assistant position. Um, and then I remember the editors mentioning different authors who I was already following on Twitter at the time. And I was like, oh, I didn't know anyone else cared about this. This is kind of cool. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so the short, yeah, I guess in p- like part of that short answer is just um, it was an assistant position in the beginning. So the first year was basically mostly administrative kind of secretary work, answering phones for people, scheduling things. Um, but that also included a lot of Um, Just great editors who are looking out for me and inviting my feedback and um, asking me what I thought about different projects, asking me what I wanted to pursue and acquire for myself. Um, And so I think that really opened the door um, to just get my feet wet and explore what it looks like to be an editor. Um, So that's kind of how I got my start.
1: Yeah. Um, And you mentioned, you said that you weren't necessarily seeking to get into publishing. What's your educational background other work experience how did that how did that prepare you or not prepare you mm-hmm. <laughs> for your role now
0: yeah so in college you know it's so funny um I initially tried to study neuroscience because this is gonna sound so stupid but, um I really liked crazy anatomy when I was growing up <laughs> And I figured that neuroscience seemed really interesting and it still like intrigues me as a field. Um, but then I got a D in chemistry. And so I was like, okay, okay, probably wise to pivot. Um, and I, th- I see that as a kind of grace. Cause that was like my freshman year of college. So. Chemistry is miserable. You didn't miss <laughs> <Wow>. anything. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm glad that I got that. I took the L early on. <laughs> um, and and then shortly after that, I was like, "Okay, maybe I should do. Um, maybe I'll try psychology or another field." Um, and then it was around that time that a lot of my friends, a lot of whom, many of whom were studying computer science, happened to score all these internships at really high, like for really high-paying internships um, at these different software companies. And then for some reason, my brain was like, "Oh, maybe computer science." And then I took a couple computer science classes. Um, and I, I was able to get it a little better than I was able to get chemistry, but I remember just feeling so frustrated during all of the problem solving processes that I, um, would work on in problem sets and things like that. Something there just wasn't clicking. And anytime I actually got something right, it just didn't, it wasn't satisfying to me. Um, and so Overall, it was just a very um, like frustrating process where I just always felt kind of stuck in some way, um, and then and so that was that. <laughs> and so I guess in the mi- in the midst of that pursuit, um, I took a radio writing class on a whim just because I was like, oh, I like NPR. Um, this sounds like a fun kind of elective. Might as well try it out. Um, and it was in that class that just like unlocked everything for me um, I did I definitely didn't academically soar or anything I didn't get everything right I didn't understand um, the elements of story and narrative architecture immediately or anything like that but for some reason there was just this inherent curiosity that made me want to learn how to get it right and ask more questions um, I think back to so many of the stories I produced in that class initially, and they were just super long. I didn't know how to cut things out. Um, But first there was some kind of drive in me that wanted to figure it out. Um, And so I think that something opened up in me during that class where I was like, I need to take more classes like this, or I want to continue learning more in this field. Um, And so that's what I did. And so I, I, ended up graduating with a BA in the liberal arts, which is just because I went to a school that only gave out BAs in the liberal arts as a funky kind of school. Um, but I think that kind of worked to my advantage because I was able to just, um, kind of make the case for my academic experience and make it really malleable and tailored to the different internships and jobs that I was applying to. Um, and so, all to say by the end of undergrad, I was pretty set on wanting to pursue journalism by whether and I, um, whether it was through reporting um, or just assisting a newsroom. Um, most of my most of my internships by that point happened to be in documentary production. And so that's kind of where I was hoping to get my feet wet. But um, when I was job hunting this gig and publishing just happened to open up. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how it all began.
1: I, I'm a great recession graduate. So I had to get very good at like spinning my various experiences. Like, yes. Oh yeah. haven't done that before, but I bet I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is actually probably an underrated way to go about it, you know, like I and I so. for when, when I talk to freelancers, they're like, well, well, I don't have this kind of project in my portfolio. I'm like, it's okay. You did this other thing mm-hmm. that is, you know, tell them how it's similar. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, a lot of my clients don't even ask for work samples. They just want to know they just want a solution. And if I can give them that solution, even if I don't have an exact example to show them, they're like, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh and actually you do some freelancing as well, right? Yeah, I do.
0: Um, on the side, it's kind of a mix of editorial freelance work, but also podcast production. So that's a lot of fun to get to kind of flex that skill that's been a little bit more dormant since undergrad. But um, yeah, it's been exciting to kind of jump back in, in a little in a, in a small way. Yeah. How did you get started with the freelancing? So it just it kind of just started with friends of friends asking and asking if they could send me stuff, whether it was their kid's college application um, or a friend's manuscript that they were curious about. Um, And yeah, I basically just set really high boundaries in the beginning, just saying like, this is, this is the service that I'm providing. I'm not offering to look it over in any professional, like I'm not offering to um, consider this, for an acquisition for my own work, but mm-hmm. I am happy to just kind of copy edit it and help fine tune, um, fine tune your work, um, and help you out in that way. Um, so that's how it began on the editorial side. And then in terms of podcast production, um, I guess in a similar way, I think some friends had remembered or asked if I knew anyone that, um, had experience producing podcasts Um, And I was able to kind of, I guess in a similar way, what you were just sharing, um, I was able to send them my SoundCloud from college um, and send them my homework assignments. Um, And thankfully, I had awesome professors who um, are yeah, just great journalists and producers who were able to help train me in that way. and yeah, who knew that it would end up translating into just being able to provide services for our friends and friends of friends um, who are now kind of getting their feet wet by produce by creating and hosting their own podcasts and just in need of someone who can edit and cut the audio, basically. Um,
1: yeah, so it's exciting. So this is something that I've asked um, several editors who have been on guests on the podcast, where how much of it, how much of your acquisition decision gets to be gets to be what you like and respond to and and how much of it is in response to, quote unquote, the market, whatever
0: that is? Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that overall at work, I have learned to emotionally dis- distance myself from the projects that come in. Um, and I think that's become a good boundary in general. Um, just because when, when we do acquire a project, I don't put the entire weight of my hope into on, onto my team or the author, because I feel like that would just be such an unfair burden or onto myself either. Um, and on the flip side, if we don't, if we lose an acquisition or my team decides to pass on something, I'm not crushed by it. Um, and so I'll start by saying that just like setting the boundaries. Um, I do definitely keep an eye out on what I find relatable, um, or what I find compelling, readable, especially if it's something that I don't think my team would find relatable then, and then kind of work from there to find, Either the comparative titles or um, the trends, not necessarily in book publishing, perhaps, but maybe on, in terms of um, different podcasts that are cropping up or different conversations that are having, being had in different faith spaces, um, kind of like listening, quote unquote, listening on Twitter to see what people are talking about, what people are engaging with, what, what questions people are asking, and seeing how a proposal elevates that, converse, that conversation. I think that different editors operate totally differently, and there are, I know a lot of incredibly successful editors who publish things that they personally really don't agree with or really dislike. Um, but I think for me, if I don't love it, I think that's a I kind of pay attention to that, and I really heed that. Um, whether that's, it could mean a lot of different things. It could mean that I might not provide the best support for this author, or it could just mean that I want to let that author go to a place where they are really loved and are really supported and cherished and celebrated. Um, and so I do think that that is kind of the first filter, um, just questioning, do I, um, like, how am I, how, how does this sit with me? Um is there anything that like, what are the things that I love about this and how can I translate that into either metrics or build a case to tell my team to pitch it to my team? Um, And then on the flip side, if it's really not sitting with me, well, if something feels problematic about it um, and they might not go in and that kind of red flag might not be going anywhere really. um, Then that's, it just makes for an easier pass. Um, And then it kind of just goes down the flow chart from there of like, all right, well, like what are the ways that I can prove that this is marketable um, to the rest of my team, even if comparative books aren't out there yet. Um, Because there are a lot of books that aren't out there yet um, that will be out there soon and we don't want to miss out on it. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't always mean a win every time, but I guess that's like a quick like flow chart, I guess, Mm -hmm. or how I operate. Do you have to run your decisions
1: by somebody else? Like if you say, if like, when, if, if you, if you get a book and it's like, okay, I want this, is it just a go? Or do you have to talk to somebody else? Like, I I mean, I'm guessing you do, but I'm just curious how that works. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, for me personally, not personally, what <laughs> for me, um, within my team, the way it kind of works is we get a proposal in and I'll usually first run it by the rest of the editorial team and say, what do you think? Like, how does the writing sit with you? Et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of secures like, all right, how did like, um, how is this landing with people? Um, And then I do present it. We have a weekly editorial meeting with our publisher, our marketing and publicity teams. And that's when we present all the proposals that we come in. Um, And if it's a pass or if it's something that we want to pass on, then we just kind of announce that we don't really need to get approval to pass on something generally. Um, of course there are nuances and that's, what if, what if one person's like, no, I really, really want that one. Yeah. If it's another editor who says that, then usually, um, the editor will pass it along and just okay. say like this is yours now like feel free to carry it home however like or hmm. feel free to you can do the work to pitch this because I don't, either don't have the bandwidth or I just don't have the vision for it but you do so like take it um and if it's something that yeah and then for all of the rest of the proposals um we'll pitch it to marketing publicity and our publisher and the rest of the editors. Um, and then it'll be more of a conversation. Um, if it's something that people seem to really like, but might have only a a few concerns about, um, then we'll usually, the next step is to schedule a meeting and with the author and the agent and our entire team. Um, and then after that point, decide, all right, how much do we want to offer on this book? Um, but I think the crucial step there is that conversation that happens before the meeting because we usually don't like to take a meeting unless we're sure that we're going to offer on something, um, and that is that usually involves a pretty back and forth conversation across the different members in the team um, to to look at to just do our due diligence. I think to consider um, who are similar authors out there. Is this a felt, is it what felt me? Is this hitting? Just like look really carefully at every element of, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The proposal just to see like, okay, is this a smaller author? Is this an author you want to take a risk on? Um, is this an author? Like, have we done the research to make sure that this author isn't like gross, (laughs) uh, things like that.
1: Definitely. So what advice do you have for Asian Americans who want to go into publishing or freelancing as the case may be?
0: I would say to reach out to lots of people in publishing, especially other um, people of color and kind of just investigate what the experiences have been. Um, I'm sure there are lots of varied experiences. um, But yeah, this is this is something that I didn't get to do until after I started, until well after well into my job. Um, but one thing I did was just anytime um, I saw another Asian, in especially an editorial at my company, I would just reach out and be like, "Hey, can we get coffee sometime? And I w- would love to hear more about your journey because um, I think that there's so many. There's so many resume type things that, you know, across the board, a lot of people, most people are subject to, but there are a lot of kind of cultural, like for me, there was a big cultural learning curve involving just speaking up more um, and advocating for myself and um, not worrying about that piece of it. And um, yeah, so I guess just reaching out to people and doing that kind of investigative work um, to see what the realities of the industry looks like, um, for different people. Um, and then I would just say, read a lot and make it known what you're reading, make it known, um, what you would like to acquire, um, things like that. Because I think that's a question I never really even asked myself until, um, way into the, way into my job. And when I was first asked that the first few times I was asked that question, I had no idea how to respond. Um, so just, I guess, identifying your taste, um, and yeah, setting some kind of goal or dream or vision for yourself within the industry. Definitely.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ashley. Uh, where can
0: people find you online? Yeah. My website and social media handles are all consistent across the board. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> um, they're all consistent across the board. It's Ashley's Hongye. So A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-U-N-G-H-A-E. So that's pretty much where I live on the internet. Um, And yeah. All right. I'll put those links in the show notes.
1: Thank you so much again. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Chief Executive Auntie. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe with your favorite podcast player and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out about the show and provides the external motivation I need to keep going. You can find show notes, links, and other resources at ChiefExecutiveAnte.com. That's Chief Executive A-U-N-T-I-E special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw for mixing and mastering this episode, composing the music and generally being a good human. Alyssa De La Rosa for creating the branding and my distribution partner Mochi Magazine. See you next time.